Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we praise you for speaking to us. For giving us this word which is alive and active. This word which is sharper than a two-edged sword. This word which divides thoughts, intents, the deep, the, deep, the deep things of the soul. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would make this word to live to us this morning, this ancient word from Zechariah. Make it ever relevant. Give us a good sense of its truth. Bind our consciences to it. By your spirit, give us grace to obey what you have for us. Keep our eyes fixed on you, we pray. Speak to your church, we ask, Father. Your speaking to us is precious. Speak, O Lord, your servants, listen. In Jesus' name, amen. There is not a human being alive or who has ever lived who has not and does not need help from time to time. It's part of what it means for us to be creatures. We are people who have limitations, and those limitations sometimes bump up against situations that, that are sort of beyond us. And it's in those times that we need help. It's in those times we need assistance. Now, we may all know or have known and have experienced a need from, for help, but sometimes, right in the midst of our need for help, we have a question. Where will such help come from? Where do we find help in our times of need? A little while ago, I'm updating myself here. That, answer got, that question got answered in the a, in a jingle of a, a, a famous movie. I said, who you going to call? <laughs> Ghostbusters, you all know it, right? You ask yourself, why did that corny song catch on? <laughs> well, surely it was because of the, the, at the time, humor, the funniness of the movie, right? But I think it was also tapping into that sort of basic human need for help. And, and we could sing that song and, and have fun with that song because there was something in us that recognized that, yeah, we, we all need help. And sometimes the, we need help in some really dire and difficult situations. And the question that sort of rises up in the soul, even if we never give words to it, is who can I call? I had a friend colleague who once defined a friend as that person you would call at three o'clock in the morning when you had a flat tire. Real quick, I recognize that there were some weaknesses in my definition of friendship. <laughs> it's like, why aren't you calling AAA, brother? You know? <laughs> but you see, his definition of friendship was bound up with this idea of being there when someone needs help. And God's people from time to time have to ask this question, where do I find help and, and who do I call on? And we know the answer from Sunday school days, don't we? We, we call on the name of the Lord, but, but sometimes we find ourselves in situations, if we're honest, if we're honest, where that feels inadequate. 
and God seems a long way away, and our troubles are bigger than our God. We would not admit that. It's not a Christian thing to do. But we sometimes feel that. I imagine that Israel was in just such a situation in Zechariah chapter 9. If you've been with us through this uh, journey, through this, this prophecy, uh, you know that Israel has come back from uh, exile. They've been in exile for 70 years. Everything they'd known had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. The city had been destroyed. The people had been flung out east and west, north and south, as if flung by a, a whirlwind, God says in the Scripture. And they have been under the oppressive rule of other countries, of other kings. And, and now God has turned the heart of pagan kings, of, of Persia and Babylon. And he's brought his people back into the land and he's given them his calling to rebuild. I'll never forget traveling through the Valley of a Thousand Kings in South Africa. Forgive me if I've told you this story before. Traveling with a South African pastor and we're driving through this this beautiful lands, um, landscape, and it's called the Valley of a Thousand Kings because tradition has it that that's where Shaka was buried and Zulu kings throughout history were buried there. And we're passing through these villages, and he asked me, what do you see? And I'd look out the window for a moment, and I think that question, this must be a trick question because, you know, this, this seems too obvious. And after a while, he asked me this question. You see any men in their 20s or 30s. I looked and I thought, no. He said, how about women? You see any women in their 20s and 30s? And I was stunned from all the little activity in these villages that we were driving through. No men, no women in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Little bitty babies and grandparents. And I said, what's happened here? At the time, he said, AIDS has happened here. That an entire generation of people in their youth and their vigor had essentially been wiped out. And we were driving to this ministry that he was a part of, and this ministry had effectively an orphanage. And the orphanage was set up in, a, in an interesting sort of way. It had these little homes with like six bedrooms in it and, and a master bedroom. And, and they were trying to, and in each, in each of those homes, they, they had sort of a house mother and if, if, if a father were around, a house father, they were trying to reconstitute a sense of family, a sense of community. And I left that thinking, how in the world do you recover from that kind of devastation when an entire generation of men and women seem to have been wiped out? Looking at this text, Zechariah 9, my mind goes back to South Africa. I, I imagine that Israel is feeling something like that. It's not quite the same thing, but the devastation that they have suffered and, and now sort of survive and they've come back into the land. And surely the question must be, how is this going to happen? We're surrounded by enemies. We, we've come, yes, with some resources that this king has given us, but will we outlive our money? And how will we protect ourselves? How can we carry out this work? And God raises up Zechariah and God raises up Haggai to encourage the people in their work. And Zechariah chapter 9 answers their question that I think is implicit. Where is our help going to come from? How will we be saved? 
And the main point of Zechariah 9 is this. Salvation comes from God. Salvation, deliverance, help comes from God. And we're going to break that down into three sections in this text. Three subpoints. Salvation comes from God because, number one, God watches over us. You see that in verses 1 to 8. God watches over us. Salvation comes from God, number two, because God comes to us. God comes to us, verses 9 to 13. Salvation comes from God, number three, because God fights for us. God fights for us, verses 14 to 17. Listen, listen intently to the reading of God's word. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron, also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. 
Salvation comes from God. Because number one, God watches over us. That's what we see in verses 1 to 8. According to those verses, God is watching over all the nations of the earth. Did you see the repetition of that idea in verse 1 and verse 8? Verse 1, we're told there that the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Verse 8 says, for now, God speaking in the first person, I see with my own eyes. The Bible's telling us that God is all-seeing and all-knowing. God is, the fancy word, omniscient. It says, we learn as little children, isn't it? About this time of year, all of us get taught that song. Santa Claus is coming to town. You remember the words of that song? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Then you hear those lines. He sees you when you're sleeping. And you think, this is taking a creepy turn. (laughs) (laughs) He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. What does it say? He knows who's been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. The song tries to leave little children in awe of Santa Claus, who knows all about them. And the song tries to help little children use that knowledge, right? The sense that Santa Claus knows all about them should drive them to behave in a certain way, be good for goodness sake. Or the idea implicitly is you'll get coal in your stocking as opposed to presents, right? Well, this is not really true of Santa Claus, who is not God. But it is true of God, who is far more frightening than Santa Claus. Verses 1 to 8, God's eyes or his watch over us is connected to his judgment of all the nations. Did you see that? The reason God comes to judge is because he's been seeing what we do. So verse 1 begins, the, the burden, or you may have a translation that says oracle. I think burden is better. The burden of the word of the Lord is against. The, the burden of the word only occurs three times in the Old Testament, and each time is associated with God's judgment. Words suggest that Zechariah would rather not carry this prophecy. It's heavy, it's a burden, but, but it's kind of like that other prophet who says it's like fire shut up in his bones. He can't, he can't escape it. The only way to escape it is to actually preach it. And the burden of the word of the Lord against the nations has come, and it's a word of judgment. And in verses 2 to 4 and verses 5 to 7, we see sort of two aspects of judgment. First is, in verses 2 to 4, a, a kind of utter judgment. An utter judgment. An utter judgment is when God's holy anger is so kindled that he destroys everything. Look there in verse 1. Hadrach. That was the city of all the cities listed furthest north. Up in Syria. Hadrach is is going to be judged by this word. Damascus is the capital of Syria. You know that the Syrians were a constant enemy to Israel in the the Old Testament. Uh, The burden of the judgment of God will notice rest in Damascus. It will remain there and, and be on them. And we come to Hamath, which is also mentioned in Numbers 13, 21. 
That was a city on the border of, of Syria and the, and the promised land. So, so this judgment is working its way from the north down toward Jerusalem, which is interesting because normally when God brought judgment on his own people, that's where it came from, from the north down toward Jerusalem. Here we see God marching from the north in his own judgment against the nations. It comes to Hamath. Today, interestingly, Hamath is known as Hamath. It lies on the main road between Syria, or Damascus, excuse me, and another, another city often in the news today, Aleppo. It's that same region. And then we come to Tyre and Sidon. These were famous cities in the ancient world. Notice in verse 2, they are very wise. Tyre was a, a defensively strong city. See there, it built a rampart, which is like a, like a fortress in the water, protecting it against, the, the, against enemies from the sea. And boy, they were wealthy. They heaped up silver like dust and gold like mud in the streets. Money was nothing to them. They were, they were blessed with extreme wealth, and they thought nothing of it. But notice their fate when God puts his eye on them in judgment. Verse 4, behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. That's a picture of utter judgment. Everything destroyed, riches stripped away, ramparts broken down. What the water does not swallow, the fire shall eat. So devastating is God's judgment. And this, beloved, is a very weak picture of the agony and the misery and the judgment of that final judgment in hell. So these verses beg us to ask ourselves a question, particularly if we're not yet Christians. Do you, beloved, take God's judgment seriously? Was it like a children's Christmas song? God just writes naughty or nice and like permissive parents gives you gifts anyway. Be assured of this, beloved. God is not mocked. His judgment is swift. It comes suddenly, unannounced, and it is devastating. His judgment against all those who reject him is severe and unstoppable. But the text gives us a second aspect of judgment to consider. Verses 5 to 7, the Lord continues judging the nations. This time the the Bible mentions Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, and Philistia. You remember the Philistines who also were ancient enemies of Israel? These are cities moving again further south of Syria and closer to Jerusalem. The people in these places now kind of have a heads up. They, they see what happens to Damascus. They see what happens to Tyre and Sidon. And look, notice what the text tells us. They are afraid. They tremble. They're shaken. Their hope is confounded. In fact, their hope to be like those cities or to depend upon those cities is shown for the foolishness that it really is. Some trust in chariots and horses, beloved. God's people trust in the name of their God. And here's what's striking. Right in the middle of judging the earth, we get a marvelous hint of God's mercy and grace. Look at the second part of verse 6. Now the text switches to first person. And God speaks himself. He says, I will cut off the pride of Philistia. And you feel like you're just going to continue in this judgment march. Now notice verse 7. 
I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abomination from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. The text switches again from the third person to the first person. And God now says, I'm going to do these things. And, and, and we think the text, again, will just continue with this judgment when it says the pride of Philistia is going to be cut off. And then we are surprised by mercy in verse 7. The first part of verse 7, all of this blood in the mouth and the abominations probably has reference to their pagan and idolatrous feasts. And God says, I'm going to remove that from their mouths. And the meaning gets even clearer when he then says that Philistia is going to be a remnant belonging to him. In other words, there are going to be people in Philistia who are, who are destroyed in God's judgment, and there are going to be some who escape his judgment. And not only escape his judgment, but they are the remnant or the remaining, the leftover that belong to him. They escape not by running from him, but by running to him. And God says, now notice what's going to happen. They are going to become like tribes of Israel. So Philistia will be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites. Now you may remember the Jebusites in David's day. David takes the land. The Jebusites are already living there. And rather than run them off the land, David absorbs the Jebusites into into the tribe of Judah. And God here gives us a picture of in the midst of judging the nations, taking a people who were an enemy of his people and making them a very part of his covenant people. Now you ask yourself the question, why? Why does this happen? Why does God spare them and keep them? It's not because of anything they did. They did not deserve it. They did not earn it. It's only because of God's mercy. He's punishing them less than their sins deserve. It's only because of God's grace. He's treating them better than their sins deserve. Salvation with God is entirely a matter of God being kind to us when we did not deserve it. It is entirely a matter of God sparing us when we should have been swallowed up in judgment with everybody else who had sinned against him. Salvation belongs to God because only God can be merciful this way to sinners. And the sinner has no argument other than to throw himself upon God's mercy. That's why Philistia of all peoples are seen here as included one day in God's people. And it's a picture that speaks all the way down to us today. But very few in this room are naturally Jewish. We were all outside of the covenants that God one time had with Israel. But God has grafted us into that people. He has made us a new people, Jew and Gentile, in Christ his son. Why? Because of his grace and his mercy. Not because of anything we have done. And so this picture in verse 7 becomes a family portrait of all God's people saved throughout all of time. And notice what happens in verse 8. The Lord finally reaches Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem, you see what he does there? He sets up camp. He pitches his tent like an army in the battlefield, and he encamps himself to, to set watch 
over Israel to guard them from trouble caused by the other nations. That's what verse 8 tells us. He does this, that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. Beloved, when the Lord is your army, your enemies can't hurt you. When the Lord shows you mercy, there's no opponent that can be merciless. When God watches over us, we can rest assured in his care. This is what Israel needed to know about their future. God has called them to rebuild a society that had been destroyed. And implicit is the question, where will our help come from? And God says over and over again in Zechariah, including here in Zechariah chapter 9, I am your help. I am your help in times of trouble. I will rebuild. I will do it through you. Trust me. And it's what we need to know too, isn't it, ARC? Our future has the same outcome. Our God will come again and all who oppose him will be judged. He will not camp with us. Instead, he will bring us to be where he is in his kingdom where there are no more enemies, where there is no more death, where there isn't even need for this kind of mercy. Praise be to God who loves his people. Which brings us to our second point. Salvation comes from God or belongs to God, number one, because, what was number one? God watches over us. Y'all listen, all right. Salvation belongs to God because, number two, God comes to us. This is the lesson of verses 9 to 13. We do not go to God first. No, first God comes to us. It's the pattern throughout all of the Bible. So verse 9 promises that Israel will once again have a king. And notice this king will be a father king. Notice there in the, in the language that's used, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. And normally in the Old Testament, that's again connected with, with judgment, but here it's connected with delight. They are to rejoice that this king is coming because notice what this king is like. He is righteous and humble. And we're told he'll come having salvation, which is a, an interesting phrase. Probably has a double meaning. That this king himself has gone through something and has been saved. And this king also comes to save his people. The image brings to mind the suffering servant of Isaiah, doesn't it? When the king comes, three things will come along with him in this text. Notice, number one, peace. The king will bring peace with him. Notice verse 9, he's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When kings came in peace in the ancient world, they didn't come on war horses, they didn't come on chariots with stallions, they, they came on donkeys signifying peace. And sure enough, verse 10, notice there, tells us that all the instruments of war will be broken. God will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be, shall be cut off. This king can do this, notice, because he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall for, be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That, that sort of sea to sea, rivers to the ends of the earth. It speaks of the, the full borders of Israel, which they had never possessed in their own time. When this king comes, all that God had promised him will in fact be theirs. The fullness of it. And when this king comes, he will, he will speak peace, not just to Israel, but notice again, to all the nations. 
This king will rule over the entire earth. As one commentator put it, the only realistic hope of world peace still centers on this coming king. When he comes, he brings peace. And when this king comes, he not only brings peace, but he he brings freedom as well. See there in verse 11. The freedom comes to those who are in covenant with God. He says here, it is because of the blood of his covenant that the prisoners are set free. We'll come back to that in a moment. Specifically, they are freed from the waterless pit. In the ancient world, prisoners were often kept in these deep pits which would be kind of dug out and smooth and and kind of vertical and and difficult to escape. And here it's a waterless pit. Uh, To assign someone to a pit like that as a prison without water was surely a death sentence. And this king comes and the freedom he brings is like bringing people back to life from this waterless pit. This king brings peace, this king brings freedom, and he also brings restoration. Verse 12. No longer are God's people prisoners in the waterless pit. Notice they are now, this beautiful phrase, prisoners of hope. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is confident expectation in God's promise. Hope is one of the three great Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Verse 12 imagines God's people as happy prisoners of hope. Chained to faith, locked inside of belief. Our prison walls are made of confident expectation that God will keep his promise. The the result or the expectation is, is notice there, a double restoration. Israel is to anticipate receiving twice as much for all they've suffered and lost. Such will be the generosity of this king. And how is all of this possible? because of the victory we see in verse 13. In this king's hands, the people are like weapons. The people become soldiers against the world's greatest powers. You see there the reference to Greece. Judah and Ephraim, they represent the once divided northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. In this king's hands, they are again united together like bow and arrow, each necessary to the other. This is not merely about earthly wars, this imagery here. It's about God's control, beloved. He is not only omniscient, seeing everything. He's also all-powerful and sovereign. One writer says, We are to picture the Lord so in command of the affairs of Israel and Judah that he can handle them as effectively as an experienced soldier does his weapons. That's the point. God's people in God's hands will be expertly used to produce God's plans. He is sovereign and he's at work and he brings to pass his rule and his plan in the world. He will have the victory and we will share in it. This is why the people are told in verse 9, rejoice greatly. Amos, this is where the Bible gets Pentecostal. Shout aloud. 
O daughter of Zion. Rejoice greatly, uh, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lift up your voice. Lift up your hearts. Zephaniah chapter 3 picks up this same theme in verses 14 and 15. Listen there where Zephaniah says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never fear again. That's reason to shout. God is in your midst and God has defeated your enemies and God has taken away judgment against your sins and God is living with you. That's reason for the whole camp to get loud and to shout and and to throw apart and clap their hands and stomp their feet and, and just let loose. This is what we'll see before this text is over. God comes to us and his coming to us is meant for our joy. His coming to us is to provide our victory. And we are meant to stand with him in that victory, enjoying all that he is and all that he does for us. The promise of this king finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In fact, both the Gospel of John, which we read earlier, and the Gospel of Matthew quote from Zechariah chapter 9 during Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Matthew 21, 1 to 5. Matthew writes there, beginning in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find what? A donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And Matthew asks this in verse four. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He's hearkening back and paraphrasing Zechariah. Zephaniah put it, the king of Israel, Zephaniah tells her who he is. It's the Lord, the Lord who's in your midst. And many in Israel did not recognize him. This is the day of their visitation when their God comes to them just as he promised and many did not recognize him. Even his own disciples, as we read earlier, didn't understand it at the time. But the promise of Zechariah 9.9 is fulfilled here in the Lord's earthly life. Christ Jesus brought peace, freedom, and restoration to the world. Think about the peace he brings. The Lord is the Prince of Peace. When he was born, Luke tells us, the angels announced to the world, peace on earth. Ephesians 2 tells us that he himself has become our peace. How did he do that? In his body, on the cross, as he made himself an offering to God for our sin. And so now God's anger towards sinners is satisfied in God's son who dies in our place. He is our peace. And not just peace, but but freedom. The Lord Jesus has brought us freedom. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I I love this text. It tells us that, that Jesus took on our humanity, quote, 
so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see what the text is saying there? As mortals, as human beings, we lived in fear of death. We were enslaved to the fear of dying. But Christ has taken upon himself our flesh and our likeness and he has come into the world and he has destroyed the devil and the work of the devil so that all who believe in him and are united to him by faith no longer fear death because we live forever. We have passed from death to life and we are free from that fear. And not just that, but we are free from a yoke of bondage to the law, Galatians 5.1, so that we can now stand in this freedom that Christ has provided for us. And it was Jesus, was it not, who set us free from the dominion and the rule and the control of sin itself, Romans 6.6. 6. A complete freedom in life and in death through the King of Israel, who is the Lord. And not just freedom, beloved but restoration. The Lord also restores us or renews us. First, he takes us sinners who had been broken and misshapen by sin. And according to Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10, he renews us in the image of God, in righteousness and holiness and knowledge. And the Lord restores us to eternal life. We were meant to live forever with God in that garden. Our first parents sinned and we joined the rebellion. And so death entered into the world. But Christ has come to reverse the curse. It's just as we sang, enjoy to the world. He, he is doing this as far as the curse is found. He is coming now and restoring life and bringing people into that life, which was meant to live to be forever. Eternal life with God. Christ has done that for us. He restores us to right relationship with God that we might be able to live forever with him. And he did that by his victory. The Lord brings peace, freedom, and restoration through the blood of his new covenant. Look again at Zechariah 9 11. It, it, it nods there in a reference to the, the blood of his covenant. It's a, it's a nod. It's a hat tip toward Matthew chapter 26, isn't it? When Jesus at the Last Supper says, this is my new covenant. What? Made in his blood. His blood would be shed for us in the remission of sins. When Jesus dies on Calvary's cross, he cuts a new relationship between God and men. He atones for our sins. He defeats our worst enemies. And he brings us back into this relationship with God as we were meant to live. It's by his victory on the cross that we have peace and freedom and restoration. So now we can rejoice that our king has come if we are Christians. We can rejoice greatly because he is righteous and he provides our righteousness. He has salvation in his hands. He has gone through the suffering of the cross, emerged victorious, and he is now able to hand to us the same salvation he has purchased by his life. And so we rejoice greatly in such a, such a sacrifice and such a savior. And my friend, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. Come join the wonder. Come join the experience of God's free love, of his free forgiveness, of his rich mercy. None of us who are gathered here as Christians, <laughs> none of us deserve this. We were in the path of judgment too. 
And God, by his mercy, snatched us out of the street before that truck of judgment hit us. And even now, in the announcement of his gospel, in the announcement of his love, he's saying to you, you, move out of the street. Come to me. Be saved. Be rescued. Find my mercy. Find my peace, my freedom, and let me restore you. And he calls you to repent of your sins. That simply means to turn away from living a life of sin and to trust in him. Rely upon Jesus. Depend upon him to save you as he promised and follow him as your Lord and your God. And the promises, the confident expectation, the true and solid hope is this, that all those who believe in Christ shall be saved. Trust him. He will save you. If you want to know more about that, it's why we exist as a church. Talk with us after the service. Talk with your Christian friend who brought you. Uh, you've got our email addresses on the back of the, of the program. Email us. Call us. Let's get lunch. Let's get coffee. Let's, let's do dinner. Uh, let us tell you more about how you can know this love and be saved by this God. Which brings us to our final point. God, not only, not only does God, does, does salvation belong to God because he comes to us. And what was the first point? He watches over us. But number three, salvation belongs to God because he fights for us. That's what we see in verses 14 to 17. Verse 13 gives us that military imagery of bow and arrow and sword. But notice now verse 14 continues that imagery, but adds to it fearsome weather. This time the Lord comes from the south. There are arrows and trumpets and marching when he appears. But there is also lightning and by implication with the trumpet, thunder and whirlwinds from the south. The idea is that God's appearing will be as frightening as the combination of an all-out war and an all-out hurricane. Just as in verse 8, verse 15 tells us of the Lord's protection. Because the Lord protects his people, his people become a a roaring army celebrating the the victory. The people are pictured as devouring and trampling the the sling stone, a a weapon in ancient Israel's day. Look, they're full of the wine of victory, a, a victory that they did not win, but that God won for them. Their cup runs over. It's, it's like blood at the altar in the temple sacrifices where blood was overflowing. So, so is their victory and their enjoyment of this victory that God has won for them. Verse 16. On that day, the Lord, their God, will save them. They will not save themselves. God will save them. Whether we're talking about military battles or spiritual salvation, that is always how it works, beloved. God saves us. We will not, and we will not ever have to, save ourselves. When God fights for us, he ensures our salvation. Zechariah then mixes the metaphors. We will be his flock. And he, as as Jesus says in John's gospel, will be our great shepherd, our chief shepherd. We will shine like jewels in a crown. I love it. We won't wear bling. We'll be bling. (laughs) We are the true jewels of Emmanuel's land, the true trophies of his grace, the studs in his crown. Verse 17, all there will be left to do 
is celebrate how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. If we only know two things about God from this text, we should know he is good and he is beautiful. In fact, his goodness and his beauty, notice, are great. Not small or insignificant, but large and impressive. And so he is greatly to be praised. I mean, think about it, beloved, as we close. When we consider the judgment that was coming our way, the ugliness of our sin, the sheer mercy of God's salvation, and the way the Lord humbly comes to us and boldly fights for us, we must surely cry out, He is goodness is great, and so is his beauty. What could be more beautiful than a God who lowers himself to love the unlovely, who wraps himself in their likeness to identify with them, who gives up his life to snatch them back from the pit, and who assures by his resurrection that they will forever be joined with him to live in his love? What could be more good and more beautiful than this Jesus the King of Israel, the Lord of lords, God of all the earth. And so the people praise him. And we remember that he is all of this to us, no less than through the sacrifice of his son. We should celebrate as if intoxicated, like those reveling in the victory of war. Our war is over. Our enemy defeated. Our help has come. He is good. He is beautiful. He is ours. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we cry out with the psalmist. Our help comes from the Lord. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the Savior of the world. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. You are our captain, our deliverer. You are our king and our God. And in you we trust. Oh Lord, we do declare with Zechariah that your goodness is great, that your beauty is great. And we only ask that you would let us see more of it and see it more clearly. Let us behold your goodness in this land and let us behold your beauty forevermore. Show us yourself, we pray. Keep us near to your heart, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.